All right, everybody, welcome back. This is DWMOD. As always, I'm your host, Mikey Wilson. It's Disagree With Me or Don't, guys, and we got a great show lined up for you. We're going to be talking a little bit of Major League Baseball, how those rule changes are playing out in the spring training right now, see how some of that stuff's landing. We're going to be talking a little bit of the state of the L.A. Lakers. Some people took offense to what we had to say in our social media videos, and it appears we're probably right. And we're going to talk to Bears fans. We're going to try to explain to you guys what we were saying in the social media video about what they should do in the draft. Seems like a lot of you were really lost on the concept of what we were trying to say and being caught up on a whole bunch of other stuff that was well really not what was being said we also got special guest clayton snyder in the house he's stopping by for a little interview you might remember clayton snyder from the disney channel middle school teenage drama that started it all for the disney channel really if you guys remember lizzie mcguire starring hillary duff anyway clayton was a big star on that show and you might be wondering well what's he coming on a sports comedy podcast to talk about and you're gonna see some really interesting stuff Now, there's plenty more to get to than everything we just mentioned right there. You know we're going to do quick hits. You know we're going to get to some knock it off. But, hey, man, you know what I'm going to say. Let's start the show. This is DWMOD. As always, I'm your host, Mikey Wilson. Stay with me now. Hey, the Pistons are scrappy, but it's quickly looking like we got all our balls in that lottery bag. Down! Hut! 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 Hey, it's 2023, and they still haven't put Sweet Lou Whitaker in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Knock it off. Ready? Aw, Lions fans drinking that Kool-Aid. Super Bowl! Hey, disagree with me or don't. That's how it works. Hut! Hut! For everybody that was laughing at Dan Campbell, he has delivered everything that he has promised. And now the NFL world is bathing in the grit and drinking the Kool-Aid of the Detroit Lions. The man is the coach of the year. Everybody's up in arms about a college football playoff expansion. Make it 8, make it 10, make it 16, it doesn't matter. In five years, the two super conferences known as the SEC and the B1G will have their own individual playoffs, and those two teams will meet in the college Super Bowl. Bet on it. Hey, disagree with me or don't. That's how it works. Oh, yes, that's how it works. And trust me, guys, there's going to be enough of it to go around on today's episode. But before we get started with that, guys, let me remind everybody that the launch for Honest Network is coming up on April 1st, right? Here we go. We're about two and a half weeks away from DWMOD TV coming to you. Now, hey, listen, everybody, get on over to honestnetwork.com and get signed up for your account. It's free. It's absolutely free, and that's where you're going to be able to log in and get all the content, and that's where you're going to be able to watch the show. That's where you're going to be able to find out where else you'll be able to watch the show. We're going to be streaming. This thing is launching April 1st. Get on over there. Support your boy. Stay with me now. Check out DWMOD TV. Get over there. Honestnetwork.com. Get signed up, guys. So let's get to some quick hits brought to you by Vibe Rosé. That's right, guys. Vibe Rosé. That's V-Y-B. And it's definitely a quick hit to get you a bottle guys head on over to vibrose.com that's vybrose.com and check it out hey let's vibe together let's talk a little lakers guys let's talk a little bit about that video we posted before that everybody was hammering us on claiming we're making things up and there's no truth to any of the beef between lebron and ad well i don't know man looks like there's something to it at this point 
I mean, it was reported pretty heavy from a lot of sources out here that there was a little beef between these two, and we saw it when LeBron broke the scoring record, and AD didn't get off the bench to even clap. We saw that, and AD had to apologize about that, and the rumor mills were flying around here that AD was going to be the one getting moved out of here next year, and they weren't sure about the future with him and the Lakers and all that. Well, I don't know, man. It seems like it's pretty legit at this point. Now that LeBron looks like he might be out for the rest of the season, and the Lakers made some great moves at the deadline, but were still struggling, and they weren't really turning the corner. But like I said, now that it looks like LeBron's out for the year and AD stepped in to take the lead with the team, well, man, let's look at the last bunch of games for AD. I mean, without LeBron on the floor and him being the floor general and taking care of business, I mean, he's had 28, 38, 39, 30. Rebounds have been off the chart. He's been distributing the ball. Uh, You've got reports from guys in the locker room saying how he's taken over the team. Guys like D'Angelo Russell uh, giving interviews and saying how selfless AD is out there, brings the whole team together. I mean, Vanderbilt discussing him on the court, his chemistry with AD, how great it is. And there's simply no denying the fact that this looked like a team that was going to struggle to get into the play-in game. And now since LeBron's been out and AD is the focus and leading this team, they're two games back of the fifth seed in the West right now. I don't know about you guys, but this screams every bit to me. AD grabbing this opportunity to show the Lakers, I'm the future here. This needs to be built around me. And maybe you're looking at the wrong guy as the problem. Now, I get it. Injuries have been a major, major part of why the Lakers are maybe hesitant to turn the reins over to AD, build this team around him going forward, and maybe move off of LeBron. I get that, and it's legitimate. All I'm saying is AD's showing us the other side of it right now. There's no denying he absolutely looks like a burden has been lifted off of him on the court, and the Lakers are rallying around him. We'll see, but... Looks like there was something to those things we had to say in that video. Hey, the NFL offseason carnival is open, and it looks like the quarterback carousel is going to be asking for the most tickets for a ride again this year. David Carr is officially off the table as he has signed with the New Orleans Saints. And hey, why not? I mean, everybody's like, why the Saints? And the Saints aren't looking that great. And what's he going to have there? Why would he go there? Why would they be interested in him? Let's not forget that the voices of chatter on that big network you watch all the time had quite a few guys last year picking the Saints as a dark horse to make a Super Bowl run with Jameis Winston before the season started. Yeah, I'm not making that up. They were. This is a team that has a very good defense, solid receiving core, and if guys like Kamara can get settled, straightened out, and stay healthy, this is a team that is absolutely going to compete in the NFC South with a quarterback like Carr. Great move for them. The Aaron Rodgers games continue, and I'll tell you what, he said something poignant himself when he said, if everybody thinks this is drama and you don't want to listen to it and it's just Aaron Rodgers being drama, then guess what, man? tune it out this is a big decision for me and this is my life and I gotta say man he's brought a lot of this on himself with the drama talk but he's right about this it is a big decision and everybody wants to act like he should have his decision as soon as he walked out of four days of darkness man he's not going to we're not going to know anything in the near future we're going to have to wait quite a while here it's going to be like groundhog's day right it's just going to be the same thing every day in the news cycle with him there'll be sprinkled little tidbits of how the movie's changing like bill murray but the alarm's going to go off again tomorrow and it's going to be the same thing until we hit 
closer to training camp, the NFL's Groundhog Day, and we'll see if Packer Tawny Phil comes out and see if Aaron Rodgers is going to play six more months in Green Bay. We don't know, but we do know this. It looks like a deal is all but done between the Jets and the Packers here to move Aaron Rodgers to New York. Now, we don't know exactly what that entails right now, but we're pretty sure it's going to involve a couple of first-round picks for the Packers, and they're going to probably end up splitting his salary in some kind of way. Nobody's taking the whole $60 million on. But Aaron's got to approve that trade. And does that seem like something he's likely to do immediately? Does Aaron Rodgers ever operate in the immediate? No. So do like Aaron said and tune it out, man. Another quarterback floating around right now that's big news is still Jimmy G. Everybody thinks he's going to get back with his old buddy McDaniels there, head out to Vegas and be a Raider, and that's probably the most likely landing spot for him. But, hey, there's plenty of other spots where Jimmy G could land right now, right? I mean, some outliers could be just off the top of my head. Tampa Bay, the system is already in place for him to play sloppy seconds to Tom Brady again. He likes that system. He knows that system. They can be competitive in the South. I'm not saying that's likely, but why wouldn't that be on the table at least? There's a couple of teams that everyone seemed to think have a lot of eggs in the basket of Lamar Jackson in the Washington Commanders and the Miami Dolphins. But I'll tell you what, Jimmy G to the Dolphins makes a million times more sense to me than Lamar Jackson. The team is just built that way. They have tons of speed at the at the athlete position, a wide receiver, right? They got Hill, they got Waddle, they got a ton of speed out there. They run the ball decently, and Jimmy G is a guy that can distribute the ball. It seems to be the, his thing, you know what I mean? He's not going to kill you all over the place, but he's a guy that's known for getting the ball where it needs to be when it needs to be and and let the playmakers make the plays. Well, I mean, Miami's not a bad fit for this guy, man, really. I think he's a better fit than Lamar Jackson there. Uh, the New York Jets thing, it's not completely settled yet. If they don't get that deal done, there's a spot Jimmy G could be plugged in. So I'm just saying, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion you can pen him in with the Raiders right now. Likely, but there's a lot of other spots. But I'll promise you one spot that's not going to happen. Stop listening about the Colts. The Colts are done with that, trying to bring in a veteran guy to fill this position right now so they can make a run at the division. That time is over. The Colts are making a move and getting a quarterback in the draft this year, and that's where they're going. So don't listen to Colts talk with Jimmy G. Hey, let's give a big NFC North salute. To my man, Adam Theline. He got let go by the Vikings this week. Looked like it was a foregone conclusion. He's kind of fallen down to depth chart there with, with possessions, and rightfully so. They've got a plethora of young receivers, probably the best one in the game in Jefferson, and it's probably just time to move on off that salary. But that being said, Adam Theline is the poster child for Chase Your Dreams, kids. I'm telling you that right now. I mean, this is a guy that came out of nowhere and wound up – the third all-time leaving receiver in receptions for the Minnesota Vikings, man. I mean, he's only behind Randy Moss and Chris Carter. And I'm telling you what, that's some pretty special company for a kid coming out of Minnesota State in college who was just invited to a tryout at a rookie camp and turn that into being one of the primary receivers in the NFL for a couple years. This guy was second-team All-Pro, 1,000-yard seasons. I mean, this guy was a star in the NFL for a minute, got some big paydays, and you know, big congratulations to him on his team for the kid out of Detroit. Well, he's born and raised in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. But, hey, it's Detroit versus everybody, right? <laughs> Stay with me now. 
That was Quick Hits brought to you guys by Vibrose. But hey, now it is time for us to get into my favorite part of the show every damn time. And that is Knock It Off. And we're about to get pretty heavy on Major League Baseball. All right, everyone. Time to do me a favor and knock it off. Well, Major League Baseball is at it again with their rule changes this year, trying to pass the narrative that nobody's watching baseball anymore because the games are just too long. It's just taking too long, and people don't want to sit through that game. That's why we've lost eyeballs. No, you lost eyeballs because you've made the game completely boring by overvaluing the home run. You've heard us talk about this for years here on the show, and the problem is you've got a whole generation of kids that are now playing Major League Baseball that were brought up on launch angles and strikeouts because that's how you get a big contract in Major League Baseball. Ridiculous analytics by non-baseball people have pushed the game to a place where every front office thinks the game should be played by take a walk, strike out, or hit a home run. That's how you win. These guys grew up emulating guys like Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, A-Rod when he was juiced out of his head because that was just celebrated, the 60, 70 home run seasons when guys were just juiced. And now that that's leveled out, you're not hitting home runs like that anymore, number one. But number two, nobody bothered to learn how to hit. None of these guys were looking at players like Derek Jeter or Miguel Cabrera, who hits a fine amount of home runs his whole career. He's always hit a very decent amount of home runs. This guy, he won the Triple Crown. But you know what Miguel Cabrera does? Miguel Cabrera hits the ball wherever they pitch it. He's notorious for hitting home runs the other way, pushing the ball to right field. Guys like Tony Gwynn were a little before the, these new players' time. But guys like that that could hit the ball that would have scoffed and laughed at a shift all the way to third base. You know what I mean? Fact of the matter is major league baseball has overvalued the home run. You take a look at all the guys that are making all the money on the hitting side of the game right now and look at what their stat lines are. It's home run based for the biggest contracts. There's just no money out there anymore for a, a gold glove shortstop that hits 320 and only hits 19 home runs but knocks in 85 RBIs and gets on base as your leadoff hitter all the time. There's no money in that anymore. You know why? Yeah, he doesn't have a great launch angle. Well, because of that, Major League Baseball has become completely boring. You're going to tune in for three and a half hours, and you're going to watch everybody take a million pitches, strike out or walk, and you're going to get like maybe two home runs in the game. They've basically turned a nine-inning game into a game of home run derby. And have you ever watched one of those old episodes of home run derby on any like ESPN Classics or something, where they used to do the old style nine innings, three outs, home run derby? Oh my God, you'll gouge your eyes out before you watch two or three innings of that. It's so damn boring. And that's what they turn the whole game into. You're no longer watching baseball because we're not playing baseball. There's no balls hit. There's no there's no plays being made. There's no throw. When's the last time you saw a guy thrown out at the plate? I mean, <laughs> come on. If a guy can hit 35 home runs, but he can't catch a ball and he's got a noodle arm, we don't care. We're going to put him out in right field and that's going to be your outfielder now. These guys can't throw to the plate anymore. The whole game has been washed down for the opportunity of maybe seeing a home run. They screwed this up royally. 
And now they know there's no way to fix this thing other than a whole generation coming up learning how to hit. It is going to take time. There's no quick fix here. It's not like basketball when they were overvaluing the slam dunk and then it got to a point where, okay, let's start doing a, a few things to manipulate the game here to make perimeter shooting the thing again. And it quickly turned and the whole game is now perimeter shooting, which that's a whole nother thing. Now they're dealing with half court shots are becoming really boring now, man. We got to get back to some physical basketball, but that's another discussion. But you see how quickly a sport like basketball could turn off a mistake by overvaluing a certain aspect of the game. How does baseball do that, guys? How do they do that right now, right? I mean, how do you get guys to just decide to learn how to hit tomorrow? They can't. They haven't worked on that. It's going to take time. So until they get that figured out, we're going to deal with all these distractions and rule changes. And remember last year's uh, rule change, the man behind the curtain, Wizard of Oz, early in the season was the pitchers. We're going to crack down on the pitchers, guys. We figured this thing out. The game is boring and no one can hit anymore because the pitchers are cheating. They're using foreign substances and their spin rate has increased immensely. What the hell is spin rate, guys? You can put all the science on paper to show me what you're talking about. And yeah, people are going to lap that up. Don't give me that, that you're breaking down the spin rate of the ball and it's just breaking a little more. Come on, man. Knock it off. You know what that was all about? Needing somewhere to lay the blame, and you could do it right on Tuesday night baseball, Thursday night baseball. We could have a public trial for everyone to see right out on the mound. The umpire calls time. It's a national game of the week. It's prime time. He walks out on the mound, dressing the pitcher down, looking for that foreign substance. It's exciting. The pitcher's been caught cheating. And you know how many times they found anybody with anything? Pretty much none. Pretty much none. That was all a witch hunt and a hoax to have a public trial to get the public to try and agree with this narrative that, oh, well, the pitchers are cheating. That's what the problem is. No, it's not. The problem is you brought up a generation of guys that don't get paid to hit. Now, let's just look at a few stats to back this stuff up for you real quick here. Let's look at team batting average, right? Uh, team batting averages under 240, okay? Uh, and I'm not even going to go prior to 1998 here. From 1998 to 2010 only one team had a team batting average under 240 in all of those seasons right by 2022 14 teams are collectively hitting under 240 i mean that's almost half the league guys that's almost half the league and by this point more than half the league has a 25 percent strikeout rate i mean come on man now, let's look at a few total league numbers, okay? In 1990, the league had 23,000 strikeouts and 3,300 home runs. By 1998, when this home run push is at its peak, we have 32,000 strikeouts and 5,000 home runs by 1998. Now, I know what you're thinking. 5,000 home runs for the season, man, that sounds, that sounds exciting, right? They've raised the number of home runs to 5,000. You raise the number of strikeouts by 10,000. You raise the number of home runs by 1,700. And do you know how many games there are in a Major League Baseball season? 4,860. So you've got 5,000 home runs now over the course of 4,860. Guys, that's like one home run a game, man. We're averaging one home run a game. That's supposed to be extremely exciting, and you've raised strikeouts by 10,000. No, this doesn't work. 
and it just keeps getting worse. By 2019, we have over 43,000 strikeouts, and we're up to 6,776 home runs. So now we're up to like 1.1 home runs a game, and we've raised it to 42,000 strikeouts. You see my case in point here. You have overvalued the home run, and now the game is unwatchable. All right, everyone, time to do me a favor and knock it off. And the other major, major area to blame here, guys, for all of this is this analytics. It drives me crazy, and it has ruined baseball. And it all started with that stupid, stupid money ball. All right, now I'm not racking on Billy Bean, and I'm not racking on Moneyball because originally the point of that whole thing was to look at a, a getting a few more guys on base, a guy guys that would take walks and get on base in front of guys that would hit the ball, right? Well, then they decided to blow that up further with analytics and take it to the point where it's gotten now or take a bunch of pitches. If you strike out, who cares? End of the day, home runs the best. Analytics has jumped the shark. It has jumped the shark. But let's go back to that Oakland A's team that's credited with all this analytics as the way to win in baseball. And let's talk about how misremembered that thing is, right? I already pointed out what the original analytics were. It's gotten way far away from that now and has jumped the shark. But also, it had to do with payroll. Those were They were trying... They were trying to be as cheap as they could and win games. So they were looking for, at the time, what was not monetarily valued, and that was a guy taking a bunch of walks, right? Mitch Moreland, first baseman. Guy who takes a bunch of walks, you don't have to pay a bunch of money, and he'll get on base in front of the guys we are paying, and then we'll get runs. So it's misremembered that that had a lot to do with having a low payroll and not just hitting home runs, okay? But the thing that is also mostly misremembered about that that Oakland A's team that they don't even discuss in the movie Moneyball is the pitching staff, guys. The pitching staff on that team. I mean, Hudson was a 15-game winner. His ERA was 298. Zito's 23-5 and with a 275 ERA. Mark Mulder, you know the name, great pitcher. He wins 19 games at 3.4 ERA. All right, and then Coke was the was the uh, closer. He's got 44 saves, right? Tops in the league just about. Their team ERA is 3.6 and is number one in Major League Baseball that year. Okay, guys, that's got nothing to do with analytics, pitch-taking, strikeouts, walks. Their pitching staff was lights out, man. And as far as, like, the the 20 in a row, I mean, look at that pitching staff. But you, you mainly remember that Oakland A's team for the monster comebacks late in games, like their ninth inning comebacks that they would have, there were several of them where they were coming back from five, six, seven, eight runs in the bottom of the ninth inning. Guys, that's got nothing to do with analytics and everything to do with being a red-hot team that is scoring runs late in the game. I mean, getting seven runs in the bottom of the ninth has nothing to do with the algorithm showing where you can take pitches and move a guy over by hitting a home run. I mean, it's ridiculous, man. It's quite often misremembered. All right, everyone. Time to do me a favor and knock it off. And let me drop one more golden nugget about analytics here for you. Okay, now I do understand the law of averages. Okay, there is some of the stuff that I can understand the concept behind it. I'm not for it because I feel like baseball, more so than any other sport, is absolutely a feel game. 
You know, you're not getting a ton of film to figure out what they're going to run in defenses and how we can double team this guy when he's got the ball. It's different than other sports, man. It is very much about being hot, being streaky. It's mental. There's a lot of gut feeling that goes into where to play guys and how to do it. And, and that's how you be successful at it. But I do understand that there is the long game in some of these analytics over the course of 162 games. If you do this thing and put this guy in this situation over the sample size of 162 games, you're going to get a success rate of 6 of 10 on that, which return value is 60%. I understand all that, and that's great. And over the course of 162 games, if you apply a lot of those things, that can be the difference in 10 to 15 wins, maybe 20 wins on the season, and get you into the playoffs. Fair enough. I'll give you that. But here's where it screws you. When you operate that way all year long and then you take that mentality mentality into the playoffs, the sample size there is not the same. The game there is not the same. When you've only got a seven-game stretch, it's like flipping a quarter, right? You know, if you flip it ten times, you're going to get close to 50-50 heads to tails, right? But if you only flip it three times, hell, it could be heads three times, guys. It doesn't have enough time to level out. Right. So you have to take into consideration everything in the playoffs, man, and throw the analytics out the window. You got to play guys that are hot. I mean, I can remember it. Let's talk about the Dodgers here with this, because this this applies to the Dodgers. They are analytics heavy. It is known that Roberts is not making a lot of decisions. They're coming from up top from some computer analytics. OK, and they do great. They've won the West how many years in a row now? They dominate the regular season. It works really well for them over the course of 162 games. And every year in the playoffs, they stick to that book and they get bounced. I remember one year in a playoffs, I don't recall exactly what year it was. It might have been the season before their one championship they won, which was in the pandemic, um, where they had a guy in the lineup that was one of the top home run hitters in the league and they benched him for the day to go with a lefty who had better analytics against the pitcher that was pitching on the other team that day and it was it was a nightmare like that's where it goes too far it's the playoffs man this is a four game series if you win four in a row you win it right seven game series you got four games to win here that's a small sample size you got a guy who's red hot and you're going to put him on the bench because analytics says this other guy's more likely to probably get a hit. It's where it goes too far, right? And it is ruining the game. When it takes over what you're doing in the playoffs, it is a major problem because the sample size is too small. Again, I go back to flipping a quarter, guys. You flip a quarter 10 times, you get pretty close to 50-50 or 60-40 on heads to tails. But you flip a quarter three times, a lot of the time you could get three heads. You could get three tails or you could get two to one. doesn't work in a small sample size. You have to play your guys and go with your gut. All right, everyone. Time to do me a favor and knock it off. So let's quickly touch on these uh, rule changes for this year in Major League Baseball. Okay, you saw the bases, man, right? I mean, you've seen these bases. They're enormous now. They're like 
<laughs> they're huge. They, somebody was quoted, it looks like a pizza box, man. It might have been Buck Showalter. Uh, yeah, it looks like a giant pizza box out there. And they're selling us that this is for safety. This is for safety. Like, especially the play at first base when it's going to be close and that guy wants to run through the bag and the first baseman's trying to put his foot on the bag and guys are getting stepped on. Don't give me none of that. I mean, any of us that have played in the local co-ed softball league have seen the device they have at first base to avoid that. I mean, you've seen that thing. And if you haven't, Google a picture of it. It's ridiculous. Baseball could have just done that if that were the issue. This is about making the bases almost five inches closer on each side. This is about eliminating double plays. This is about pushing guys to steal bases. Uh, speaking of, they're going to allow those guys to still wear those, those oven mitts that extend your arm by six inches, and then they're going to add five inches to the base. Yeah, you're going to see more stolen bases, guys. You're going to see less double plays, guys. And they're going to take away the shift again. You know what I mean? So it's hilarious to me that they're trying to push this as something to do with safety. And as far as the shift goes, I'm all for that shift, right? Because you got to try to bring back some of the hitting and you got to bring back some movement in the game, right? But they eliminate the shift. And now Major League Baseball is telling you what I was telling you five minutes ago on this podcast with their actions, right? It used to be you would shift a guy from the infield to the other side and leave a huge gap in the infield, but you still had your three outfielders out there, right? You weren't giving up gaps and alleys in the outfield, right? Now these guys in spring training are going fine. Two infielders on each side of the bag is the rule. We're going to bring an outfielder down over to complete the shift, and we'll just play with two outfielders. I mean, they are literally giving you the gaps in the outfield now and telling you guys can't hit. That guy at the plate cannot drive the ball to the opposite gap. Guaranteed it. We'll play with two outfielders. I mean, they are telling you with their actions what I'm telling you. All right, everyone, time to do me a favor and knock it off. Now, last thing I'm going to beat up on Major League Baseball about is this pitch clock, man, right? I mean, we are letting non-baseball people make these rules based on analytics, and we are letting non-baseball fans inadvertently dictate to us how the game is going to be presented to make it more watchable. This is ridiculous, man. This this pitch clock thing is absolutely changing the structure of the game at its whole. Guys can't get set. Pitchers are being rushed to throw pitches. And it's all under this guise of we're going to make the game faster. We're going to make the game quicker. Well, there's another reason to it I'll get to in a second. But we're going to make the game quicker. Like the results are in. It has made the game faster by 22 minutes. And if you watch the the mothership, as it's referred to, if you watch your ESPN in the morning and you see the talking points that they're being pushed to press because they put Major League Baseball games on, they're paid to broadcast them. So, of course, they're going to be on the side of, hey, this is a great idea. And you hear guys like Buster Only are even saying, like, this is awesome. It's 22 minutes faster. And they're making that out to be like it's some huge thing. Like, wow. This has really worked, man. It has shaved 22 minutes off the game. What a success. Let me give you an example of a conversation that has never happened and is never going to happen, okay? Hey, my man, you want to watch the game tonight? Nah, dude, I don't really watch baseball. Oh, come on, man. It's going to end like 22 minutes faster. The game's quicker now by 22 minutes. You want to watch? 
Oh, yeah, that sounds great. Let's watch it then. (laughs) Come on, man. That's a conversation that's never going to happen. Stop it with that. And I'll give you another reason why this pitch clock is going to blow up on Major League Baseball because I really think they felt it was going to hurt the pitchers and help the hitters. I think that really they they really thought that this was going to force pitchers to make more mistakes or not really get settled enough to pinpoint their accuracy and and get on top of their breaking balls and so I think they really thought that rushing the pitchers was going to force them to make mistakes which would lead to the trajectory level hitters hitting more home runs I really think they thought that this was going to benefit the hitters and now we are seeing it's not The pitchers have settled right into, oh, I can hurry up and throw this pitch. We saw a guy get struck out in spring training the other day in 20 seconds. 20 seconds. The batter's not allowed to leave the box. This guy gets the ball back, winds up, bam, smack, strike. Batter can't leave the box. Pitcher gets the ball back, steps right in, strike, steps right in, strike. He struck this guy out in 20 seconds. The guy never even had his feet set. This is going to backfire on them like you wouldn't believe. The hitting is going to get worse. All right, everyone, time to do me a favor and knock it off. All right, now I'm going to be done beating up on baseball for a minute here, guys. I'm going to let it be because there's really nothing that they can do to make it a quick fix here in baseball. We're just going to have to wait this thing out and see how they can figure out to raise team batting average without trying to put the pitchers at a disadvantage or, you know, stuff of rule changes that are supposed to speed up the game. They know the problem is batting. They know that they need to get these team averages up, and I just don't know how they do it in a quick fashion. It's just not going to happen quickly, guys. But anyway, hey, let's get to the guests, man. We got Clayton Snyder here, a good buddy of mine. We spent a lot of time together over at the Groundlings putting some shows together. Had a lot of fun over there. And I'm telling you, he he is one of the best dudes you can know. He's just a stand-up dude. And we sat down to talk about some things that I think you're going to find really fascinating. Let's welcome him to the show, man. Clayton Snyder, welcome to the show, man. It's good to see you. I agree. It's great to see you, too. <laughs> looking well. Looking well, as always. Ah, oh, shucks. You too, man. Good to see you. <laughs> well, listen, I was telling people at the beginning of the show who was coming on today, and I told them, you might not recognize the name, but when you see the face, you're going to know him. <laughs> and bam, there it is. So now all you Ladies recognize- and gentlemen, you definitely won't recognize this name, but you, <laughs> <laughs> but you might recognize his face, maybe. So as soon as you popped on, I'm sure they're all realizing who it is. So anyway, you know, your early, early acting fame, Lizzie McGuire, right? right? Ethan Kraft That's on right. the show. That's right. Oh man. Good memories. Oh man. So much pasta. It was great. <laughs> Golden years. Well, how, oh yeah. I, I gotta ask you how you, how you even get, got into that at a young age? Um, you know, I was one of those kids who enjoyed movies a lot, like a lot of us did, and just enjoyed impersonating and repeating characters that I liked. I was a big Jim Carrey fan. Um, loved me some Ace Ventura, and I'd just be I'd just be quoting movies all over the house, and I enjoyed entertaining people and making them laugh a whole bunch. And uh, I actually attribute it a lot to my elementary school because they, you know kindergarten or whatever through fifth grade but only the fourth and fifth graders who were the big kids uh could be in the school play and so okay. when i was younger i was like oh like the older cool kids 
get to be in the, in the musical. So it, like it flipped the narrative for what it usually is for kids in school, where it was like, you know, eh, the theater nerds. And I was like, wow, that's what, what the cool, popular, you know, cool kids do. And I did uh, a couple of plays there and it spun into some community theater for me. And then uh, my mom subscribed to Backstage West Magazine because there was no internet really. Okay at that time uh crossing that you know gap in technology and got a workshop with a manager who uh it helped and got me an agent and i was auditioning for about a year and a half um commuting yeah. from orange county to los angeles and uh, aside from being background in a usd grad student film and getting a hundred dollars for a public service announcement commercial that was the first thing that i that i got I, that's crazy I mean, that's yeah. crazy. Like it happened, it happened pretty, pretty quickly. Now to me, yeah, I'm like, relatively. that's something that is going to live on forever because that generation of kids <laughs> that were watching that they're sharing it with their kids now. You know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. Well, now that Disney plus, uh, has got it streaming. Um, yeah, there, there's always that possibility. I hadn't really, really thought about that, how there might be like, Oh, I love this when I was in middle school or this helped me like talk about things that were going on back then. Or I, I don't know what people might say. I'm telling you, um, I show, I show my son all kinds of stuff I watched when I was younger. You know, that's just what you <laughs> I do. thought about you know that. Like, I mean? What am I going to pass on? What am I just going to pass, uh, on, yeah, right. you know, <laughs> Yeah, what are you going to pass on and what are you going to pass on? I get it. That's I right. Get it. <laughs> That's great. Well, is it strange? Like, do you still have, like, now grown women that come up to you that were crushing on you when they were younger? Is that weird or what? All these grown women are approaching me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they don't uh, I mean, No, I would. I mean, the, the rate of approaching from uh, others, uh, men or women, uh, old or young, has definitely declined over the years, but there's definitely um, moments here and there. I work in residential real estate now, and now and again, I'll be talking with a client and like, we'll be, you know, working with them and showing them homes and it'll be like the third or fourth time. And they're going to be like, okay, I got to ask, I'm so sorry. Are you the guy? I'm like, yes, I am. They're like, oh my gosh, I knew it. And it'd be like a married right. couple. They'd be like, I told you it was him. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It's, it's just got to be, you know, it's never going to end, but it probably never gets old. But now you continued well, just going to public school while you were, were doing that, right? I mean. Uh, yeah, yeah. That was, that was, I was actually in middle school, in public middle school, playing a kid in public middle school uh, and, and still commuting from Orange County to LA during that time. Yeah, that's crazy, man. Now, is there any truth to the fact that you took Hillary Duff to one of your dances? Is that true? <laughs> Yeah, it's my. I don't know who's. I think it was my mom's idea. Of like, oh, like that beat that'd be fun, you know. Like, get her, get her out, and like, you know, just like have a fun time. I think her and some of my buddies like all just went over as a group, and I felt so bad because you know, poor her. She's just having a good time or trying to have a good time, and yeah. naturally, you can imagine what it's like going to like this random middle school like yeah. dance uh, at some uh, auditorium, and just the whole place is just one circle around her she just kind of two-stepping trying to live her life and yeah, every once right. in a while there'll be like the bad boy that'll kind of jump in there and try to try to do, do something and right. be like, oh man i don't think this is the, <laughs> the right place you wonder why you don't see a lot of people in, in public spaces like this is why yeah, yeah i get it i get that for sure now so like going into your freshman year you guys are heading off to film the big lizzie mcguire movie now you're all over the yeah. world, world filming that thing paris canada and all that <laughs> stuff well i mean almost yeah 
You're in Japan. You're in yeah. Sydney. You're... <laughs> I mean, that what a great experience for a kid for sure. But that brings me to my next question because here's something a lot of people don't know about you was that you're you're also a professional athlete, man. Like, well, ha- were yes, was yes, formerly indeed. Yeah, I mean, you were a big time water polo player man a lot of people may not know that but it's completely fascinating because i mean obviously i was looking up some stuff but it said that um your freshman year after you had to miss playing that year because you were filming the movie right yeah that was actually a really um hot moment of my life because the the it's just how do i say this I'll just say that no one had any idea that the show was going to blow up like it did. Uh, I know that it was, you know, it's a Disney show. Like, that's a big deal to be cast in a Disney show. But also, uh, Liz McGuire was, you know, not the first of its kind necessarily, but it kind of set this wave of, like, there's Hannah Montana after that and, like, a lot of kind of similar shows um, trying to repeat that model. And uh, they didn't know they were going to do a movie, you know. So when the series wrapped... um, it was just like, okay, it's over. And I'm heading into high school now so I can just live my yeah. high school life. And I was still playing club water polo during all that time uh, of, of filming and going to school and doing the show. So I was like, ha, huh. like I was going to be going into varsity as a freshman water polo player. And I was already having a lot of talks with my coach and we were like doing trainings and I was yeah. going to be, you know, if not in close to the starting lineup uh, for this team, and all of a sudden we get this call saying, hey, there's going to be a movie for this. It's going to shoot in Rome, Italy and, and release in theaters. And it's like, oh, um, yeah. that tells you a little bit about me that I wasn't like sick. I'm out. Yeah, it was right. like, oh, gosh, what do I do? My team needs me. What do I yeah. tell my coach? Like that, that, yeah, that's where my man. head was that's at. Exactly. And I, I remember the day that I walked on the deck during practice, um, either before or after and I, I knew I had to tell the coach, um, Dave Carlson, and I come up to him and I was like, hey, um, coach, by the way, um, we got a call about the Liz McGuire show and they're going to make a movie for it in Rome. And I've decided that I'm going to do that and miss freshman season. Pregnant pause. By the way. By the way, yeah. <laughs> I don't remember the rest of that conversation. I just right. remember that part and being like, Ugh! like, oh man. And then the whole time that I was actually filming overseas, uh, I was just so dialed into the computer, uh, watching the live stat updates of like steals and possessions and goals and whatever yeah. um, online uh, and just like being tied to my team so much on like how they're doing and always thinking, oh, like they you know, barely lost that game. Could I have helped them and being there in their wins? And I was just like, so distraught of not being there. They made it to CIF in the finals and it was like tied at half. Um, and I was like, gosh, if I was there, like they could have won that game uh, as a, as a freshman. And uh, yeah. I was like, you can ask my parents. They're like, you were depressed. Like you really, like you were in a dark place. You were really sad about that. And so afterwards it was like, okay, I can, like there's like three main things. There's academics, there's athletics, and there's acting. One of them's got to go, at least for now. And it's like, well, they always say stay yeah. in school, kids. So I figured that's the wise thing to do. Plus, that's where like all my, my real friends were there, and I wasn't willing to let go of them. 
um, water polo, if I quit now, um, I was doing pretty well at it and I'd never know how far I could go. And I'd always kind of wonder, yeah. and I, you can't like go back, um, to playing a sport necessarily. Sure, sure, and sure. acting was like, you know what, this is something that I could potentially put on pause. And if I want to come back to it, I totally can. Um, and that's what I did and took 11 years yeah. off. Well, that's what, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Like, how does that conversation go? Like, you know, I had a, that's a big decision. I mean, you explained it really well, but like sitting down with your folks and everybody, I mean, that's, that's a strange conversation, man. Like most times, nine out of 10 times that conversation goes the other way for people. You know what I mean? It can. Yeah. I mean, it just, it depends. Everyone's different. Um, just how they're built internally or what their influences are or, you know, how they're raised. And um, I mean, look, if my, my, my dad did well in business and I was not like for once, like as a kid, I always tried to like work really hard. Like Bruce Lee was my idol as, as a kid. And um, I think if I grew up in different circumstances and understood that, oh, I could probably make a lot more money acting than I could playing water polo. I might've made a different decision, you know, like a lot of, nah. a lot of, you know, kids <laughs> that go into acting or sports or whatever it is, like choose that direction. Cause they want to feed their family. Um, you know, not just like their own, but their mother and father and these things like that. And so I didn't have like that pressure, um, to make ends meet that way. So, um, I was kind of just, well, let's, let's live life fully in that way. And I knew, I knew that I had acting was my first love, but at that time, I think I had either the most fun playing water polo, or I felt that I had the most self-respect playing water polo. Sure. 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 Yeah. That makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. But it, I mean, ultimately turns out to be a great decision for you. I mean, I mean, just let me, <laughs> we'll never know. I don't live in what ifs. Absolutely. It was. Yeah. I mean, but there's no what if about it. Like you wind up getting a full ride scholarship to play water polo at Pepperdine, which if people wasn't don't know ride. water it wasn't polo. wasn't full ride, but if, but if it was partial scholarship. Well, yeah. Hey, you know what I mean? No, you're, you're playing at Pepperdine, number two team in the country at the time or whatever, you know, you're a four year starter on the, on a, the team, you know what I mean? Junior, senior year, you're captain. I got a list of some of your accomplishments on this properly <laughs> correct decision that I believe you made. All right, because what a life that you live doing this water polo thing it is fascinating to me. It's awesome. Uh, so you guys, you, you give up the acting for a bit to stay with the high school team. You guys win the CIF championship one year. You go to three of them or something like that. You win yeah. one of them. You're named player of the year. Uh, that's a big deal. You go to Pepperdine, four-year starter, junior, senior year, you're captain and all that. All-American. I mean, that's a big, big deal. Yeah, that's a big, big deal, man. And then you got named to what the Speedo Cup team. You guys won that championship. Then you yeah, that was that was during Liz McGuire team. filming. That was a fourteen under uh, cup playing with yeah, uh, the SoCal well, Water Polo Club. Deal, right? <laughs> How hard yeah. is it to get added to that? It was team? like it was that was like the national championship of age group water polo at the time. I would say for fourteen yeah. unders. That's a huge, big deal, man. That is. That is immensely difficult to achieve. People don't understand that across sport. That That is immensely difficult to achieve. And then you're training with Team USA, and then you go over to Europe, and you're playing some pro water polo over in Europe. Now, what is that like? Oh, man. that's, a, that's <laughs> What is that like? It is, for, for me, uh, I look back on it um, both. Uh, I look at it with a lot of different colors and lights because it was sure. such a rare 
opportunity to be able to do that, to be able to live in a couple of different countries and meet new people and play at that higher level and um, to, you know, you're not, you're not making a living necessarily. Well, I guess you're making like a living, like you're flat covered. They might give you like a monthly stipend depending on the, um, on the club and what they can do for you. Um, <laughs> I hope, I hope today it's a little bit, um, steadier across the board in terms of sure. people getting what uh, stipends are agreed to. Um, but also, you know, I'm the only American out there and not everyone always speaks English all the time. And it's a like a sport that you go over there kind of into the late fall through the winter. Um, so okay. like not the best weather all the time. And uh, my style of play that I was used to in uh, college actually didn't didn't translate very well over to the European style, especially my first year in Italy. Uh, I was used to being very, you know, like muscle work hard and like the the more I can out muscle or outwork my guy, the better the better I'll do. Where yeah. in Italy it was like a lot more finesse and flow, and if you make like too big of movements, uh, kind of as you might see in a soccer football game, guys will feign that you're being too rough with them oh, and cause turnovers. Gotcha. And that happened to me so often. <laughs> it was very, very frustrating and difficult uh, to adjust to. Um, and then my, I was racking up some injuries as well and trying to continue like to, to push forward. And my last year, I um, uh, first year played in Italy, second year played in Hungary, I had a better time in Hungary, really loved those guys. Um, had a, it was in a small town called Kaposhvar. Um, probably if I wanted to, uh, I could have stayed there for a couple more years now, like continue to develop and have a great time yeah. over there. But I felt I was doing this because I wanted to shoot my best shot at making the 20, what would have been 2016 Olympics. And I felt like in order to progress where I needed to, I had to play at the highest level I possibly could with the best coach I could possibly get connected with. And so I went on this crazy trip at the end of my season in Hungary, uh, crossing the Hungarian-Serbian border. And there was like a passport patrol duty thing there where like, hey, if you cross over the border, you're not going to be able to come back into the EU. It's this whole thing. Like, am I going to shoot my shot? If I try to fly back into Italy, are they going to send me back to Serbia? And I'm going to be like stuck over here. Like, what does that look like? And I'm just right. going for it. Visited a whole bunch of different clubs. Thanks to a dear friend of mine. Shout out to Lazar. Um, and got connected with this young team in Montenegro and Herzegnovi um, uh, under Vladimir Gojkovic, one of the best Montenegrin players. Uh, he had just retired. Um, he's now the Montenegrin national team head coach. And uh, I was kind of this, <laughs> my, I, I asked for a month's extension to my preseason training because I was going to be best man at my brother's wedding. And I was just training by myself at home and I couldn't get out of my head how big I remember those guys being there. They're in the Adriatic League, which at the time was the biggest, meanest league in the world, playing against six, seven Olympic medal Croatians and Hungarians. Uh, big time athletes, and, man. They're, they're big boys. Yeah. All yeah. the guys that, that, that would play basketball and football in the U S they play water polo. <laughs> yeah. So Over for there. everybody out there listening right now, like just go in your backyard pool and try to tread water for a minute and a half. Now jump in the pool <laughs> with those guys and crawl all over each other, pulling you around, banging around. I mean, come on. That's a big, yeah. that's a lot of work, yeah. man. So, so I was trying to get bigger and bulkier, but like I lost some of my water touch and then I get food poisoning my first weekend there out for two weeks, finally got better, 
first scrimmage back against the Russian club team, pulled both my hamstrings, and it's just like wasn't going well for me. Uh, there was a new national team, uh, U.S. team head coach, um, uh, rotating in who like wiped the slate clean of every one of my generation. It was like starting a fresh new from, you know, uh, from big kids uh, mm-hmm. that looked looked promising. So it was like I'm. I'm not having fun and things aren't looking good in this direction. So I'm going to hang my cap as it will and, and come back to the States. Well, that's, but, that, that's but I had, but I had to, I had to quit though. Now that's the tough part. If you've, if you've yeah. been, you know, a team captain, team player, like I can do it, I can do it. And then you get to this point of like, Oh, I'm quitting. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a, yeah, man. a dark place. You say it. I can, I can feel that. I'm like, Oh man. Yeah. Like that's a tough spot to be in. Yeah, I, can, can I can smile like about it now. Time. I can smile about it now. I wasn't smiling. Yeah. yeah. No, not at all, man. That's like yeah. people. And again, people don't understand the amount of work that goes into doing something like that at all. We had a kid on our team this year at Calabasas high school. That is a, a big time snowboarder. And he's hmm. on the national teams and things like that. And but he had never attended high school. He had never attended high school. And this year, his senior year, he kind of had that talk like you did with your folks. And he said, I want one year of normalcy. He said, I want to hmm. not snowboard this year. Hmm. And they're like, this is the big year for you, though. Like Olympic trials are coming around and all that stuff. He said, I want I'll be fine for that. He said, I want to join the football team and go to high school. And he joined our I football that, team. Yeah. Uh. yeah? He did well, great. Sorry. I, mean, I know I cut you off. Yeah. No, I, I want to hear about it. But I was just going to tell you, don't feel bad. Cause he, I mean, he did amazing. Like he came, like we were 14 seconds from winning CIF this year. And oh, really? this kid oh, came great. out with so a real big time program. We got kids going to USC and stuff. And yeah. he came out and started a bunch of games, played a whole lot, was a big role player for us, like on special teams and stuff. Cool. And, and he did great. And then his dad told us at the banquet, soon as the season ended, he went out for the trials were starting, you know, for the, the national circuit or whatever. He had to go uh-huh. right out to the pipe. And he said, his coaches were like, I wish everybody took the year out to play football. He went out there and dominated. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? so he had a great mm-hmm. time. You know what I mean? But you were mm-hmm. saying you that's had a similar. Good. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's something to that. I think that's a much deeper conversation about psychology and in, in sports and how we become so, uh, specified and like if you take like a month off then you're behind the rest of the competition and we get so worked up on skills and conditioning when your mind is in your soul is yeah. like 90 percent of it and so you know you could arguably train more to be better but sometimes taking that step away uh, will actually make you um, perform loosely um in yeah. that way but for for me uh my senior year of high school actually like my, my junior year of high school i was burnt to a crisp i was doing uh swim team uh uh i was doing uh water polo club uh, i had a lot of ap classes i had a girlfriend uh i was on uh associ- associated student body asb whatever it was uh, like the student yeah, council yeah. thing um and among other things and it was just a lot and uh, that was a that was a rough year or semester for me as well so going into my senior year i made the choice to not do swim team which is a bit of bit of a faux pas for a senior on the water polo team especially because typically a lot of your water polo guys are better swimmers uh 
right? So, but I wasn't. I, I was. I, I never made varsity swim team as a varsity water polo player. Uh, and I was just put in like the long distance events. And so I felt like the swim team didn't really need me um, and that I was just going to play club water polo and just have more time for myself and my friends my, my senior year. And yeah. I, I go back and forth a little bit on that decision because after that, my swimming had always been a little bit behind um, from then moving forward. Okay. And I wonder if it hadn't been, if I didn't, but I had a freaking great time. I had an right. awesome spring right. semester of my right. senior year of high school. Um, yeah. And I still had a pretty strong, uh, you know, college career and that's for sure. And I'm still playing masters yeah. to, to this day. So it could be like, ah, uh, uh, like what would have been different if I did that? And it's like, I don't know, man. Uh, I think at the time, at the time you, it, this fine line of making decisions that are hard and, and they suck and you just got to grind through it versus like, I, this is what I want or what I know that I don't want to do. I'm just going to make that decision. And it can be yeah. tough to find that line sometimes. And I think that you're, I think that you can still not want to do something, but you know that you would feel more peaceful doing it. Yeah. And so yeah. you make that choice yeah. and you have to follow like, where am I actually going to feel more aligned or more at peace? Yeah. You got to get your head space right, man. You know, that's a big deal. Getting your head space. It's hard right, to know what that is. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm a huge proponent for like out. sports like therapy these days, like for sure. Yeah. I hear more and more schools are like implementing that. And I think that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot more uh, studies coming out and, and more coaches coming forward and talking about these guys are getting burned out and getting injured at real young ages because they're getting burned out because they're becoming one sport kids and they're only mm -hmm. playing that sport year round. And, you know, it's one million movements to that one joint. And they're like, hey, spread it out, man. Play some other sports. Yeah, it's like, like, oh, kids these days, like, like we didn't get injured when we were young. Like, we didn't get, like, the, the kids are so soft these days. They're getting hurt all the time. It's like, you have no idea the kind of training that new generations right. are going through compared to generations past. We're like, you only played football for, like, two months at a time. You know, like, <laughs> yep. what, yeah. what are we trying it's, to compare here? they're breaking down their bodies, man. Like I see these kids, yeah. like they leave practice and then they go meet with the trainer. And then in the morning they're up with another trainer and then they're back at practice. And then I'm going, yeah. you, man, you're 15 years old. You're burning your body out, man. Chill out. Go see a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Relax bingo. on something, man. Bingo, bingo. Well, listen, I know you're still doing, you know, you got your foot in, the, in a lot of pools, man. And I know you're still doing a lot of the acting and, and producing, <laughs> writing, all that stuff is still going on and you're crushing it with the real estate stuff as well. But I wanted to, to talk to you a little bit about a passion project of yours, because I also find this fascinating and <laughs> that, that share with us the story as quickly or as long winded as you want to be about okay. your grandfather. Yeah, so my grandfather, my dad's dad, his name was Howard Snyder, and he was of the greatest generation. He fought in World War II in the European theater. He was a B-17 Flying Fortress pilot. It's a 10-man uh, bomber plane. Um, you'll notice it by its four engines and gun turrets yeah. uh, all over it. And they flew in massive formations uh, doing bombing missions in daylight over uh, Nazi-occupied Germany. Uh, in other countries uh, during the war. And on his fourth mission, 1944, uh, he was actually shot down. Two members in the plane died immediately. Well, I'll back up just a little bit. Uh, there, after a bombing run over Frankfurt, uh, their Bombay doors were busted open uh, due to some flak damage and their drag from the doors kept them 
behind the formation. They were singled out by two Falkwell fighters. And they were, they all three planes shot each other down <laughs> in one That's instance. Crazy. All three planes go down. Uh, and my grandfather managed to parachute out last. And he landed in some trees, was found first by some Belgian farmers. And he was kept in hiding by uh, Belgian freedom fighters uh, for about seven months while he was missing in action with a wife um, who was pregnant and, and also had another daughter back home in the States who had no idea what had happened to him. And he eventually got connected. Uh, he kept trying to escape to Spain, um, but every time that it would be the night that they would try to send him out, somebody yeah. would say, nope, something's wrong. The lines of communication, something's, something's not right. We're not going to go. And he kept getting fed up with failed attempts to escape. That it's like, look, I'm not just going to hide. I'm going to fight. And so he got connected with a French underground resistance group that gave him some dynamite, a machine gun, and a handgun. And they would go yeah. sabotage uh, German tank convoys. And I think we have uh, a belt um, from a German officer that he stole from him after disabling his tank. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's a wild story. Um, then D-Day happened. Uh, storming of the Beach of Normandy, Patton's Third Army comes through France, and he was uh, found in the village of Trelon and um, returned back home. And they had a third kid, and that was my dad. Uh, so there, he was in the the 306th Bomb Group of the Eighth Air Force. Um, and my dad, uh, after he retired, got very interested in his father's story, and he came across a bunch of letters that he uh, that that his mom and dad wrote back and forth to each other detailing about like what it was like on the base life in Thurlai, England, um, what training was like and he, all these names were mentioned and they were all his crew members. And so that got my dad interested in the stories of the crew members and he yeah. found family members to them. And then he also, you know, was hearing about these characters of people that helped him out in, in Belgium. Uh, and there's so much more to this story, but he ended up spending five yeah. years of research um, and wrote a book called shot down. Uh, the true story of pilot Howard Snyder and the B-17 uh, Susan Ruth. And it's won a ton of awards. It's an amazing, amazing piece of history. You guys are I, at I, all I, into war yeah. books and stories. That's a, it's, a, it's done with as little um, subjective opinion as possible. It's just like, this is what happened. Here are the letters, here are the facts. And it goes off to like, uh, it's, um, steps a little bit left and right to give uh, co context to different bits of history or comparisons. And it's, it's a really amazing piece. Um, so we actually made a, a 15 minute short documentary uh, about that whole thing. And I went back to mention about the two Falkwell fighters because one of them um, crashed and burned with a pilot inside. And we actually know where the engine of that plane is today. And oh, really? uh, the other Falkwell fighter parachuted out and he survived the war, um, got himself into West Germany during all that mess. He worked as a translator, and I actually got to meet him. And I had a beer Holy cow. with the man who shot down my grandfather's plane in World War II. Oh, my God, dude. This, yeah. this is so crazy, a story. Yeah. All the way up wow. to the end, you're having a beer with the dude. I mean, yeah. it's amazing. <laughs> the book is amazing. I have no idea why this thing has not been turned into a movie or a mini series for HBO or something yet. I mean, the story is amazing. Yeah, it's, it's something we'll talk to, talk to, um, uh, Oh gosh, Tom Hanks. He's, he's producing a, I think it's a mini series about the, the bloody hundredth. 
uh, bomb okay. group of the of the Eighth Air Force, which is another B seventeen group. So they might have uh, taken the wind out of our wings, if you will, uh, for the B seventeen content. But I think that our our stories pretty unique and pretty powerful and pretty amazing for uh, dozens of reasons. So uh, we're always working on ideas and how to pitch that forward. But um, currently, uh, both my dad and I are working in our uh, 306th Bomb Group Historical Association um, on the board of directors um, and as officers for that. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Man. I know that takes up a lot of your time and effort, but it's it's got to be so enjoyable. And that the story is amazing, guys. The book is amazing. Go get that thing. You can get it on Amazon, right? You can get it anywhere, right? I mean, if you just like, you can just Google shot down book and it, that's it. And I'm telling you, it's fantastic. That thing is good. It, I mean, you got everything in there. Like you get shot down you're behind <laughs> enemy lines, you survive, and then trying to escape. You get tired of trying to escape, then become yeah. hooked up with this freedom fighter group, and then you're sneaking out, wiping out German tanks. With it. this has everything you want in a great, <laughs> great story. If you're a World War II nut, you can't put this book down, man. It's fantastic. I, and I, I would agree. I, I'm definitely biased, but um, it's a, it's a really, really special piece, and I think if you start reading, it's hard to put down. It absolutely is, man. It's fantastic. Well, listen, brother, I appreciate you coming out to the show, man. It's it's good to see you again, as always. Uh, I mean, you're just such a genuine dude. And uh, like, our time together <laughs> at the Groundlings, that's why we kind of gravitated together, man, because you're just oh, such man. a genuine, regular dude, man. And I just enjoy you. And you speak your mind and you're honest, but you're upfront and kind. And, and I'm telling you, just a great guy. I appreciate you coming out to do the show, brother. Thank you for having me, Mike. Much love, man. See you soon. Okay, we'll talk to you, man. We'll see you next time. <laughs> All right, bye. Well, that was Clayton Snyder, guys, and I'm telling you, you won't find a better guy. And as promised, uh, his life is fascinating, man. If, if his life was a canvas, could you find anybody with broader brushstrokes on their painting? I mean, the guy's all over the place with a lot of things. He's got a crazy life, man, and just a really good dude. It was great to sit down and talk to him. But now it's time to get into the final part of the show here, guys, and it's time to disagree with me or don't because that's how it works, right? And I'm going to dedicate this segment out to all the Bears fans that just tried to lambaste us when we posted our social media video about what we proposed the Bears should do in the draft, right? Well, it appears a lot of people didn't understand the concept of what we were saying at all. So we're going to break it down for you in simple terms. First of all, yes, we proposed trading Justin Fields. And mind you, we posted that video before your favorite morning ESPN shows and talking heads were starting to push that as a big time narrative. We were talking about that a little bit before they were. But anyway. What we proposed quickly got turned into the fact that we think Justin Fields is a bust and the Bears shouldn't give up on Justin Fields yet and that we're crazy and we don't know what we're talking about. And first of all, nobody said Justin Fields is a bust. Nobody said you should move off him because he's not going to be any good. That's not the concept of what was being talked about in the least. Justin Fields is a pretty good player, and he's got a pretty good upside. I'm not saying he's got a huge ceiling like everybody else, but I think he's a pretty good player with a pretty good upside. Now, the point that you all wanted to lambaste us with about you can't move off Justin Fields, you, you spend too much time and money and effort into the guy to just move off him right now, and I'm going to tell you what, that's some pretty poor logic because I got a cousin, Teddy, that bought himself a fake Rolex, and he spent 300 bucks on it, and he wears it all the time, and we all know it's fake, and we tell him, Teddy, Take off that fake Rolex, man, and he won't take it off because his logic is, hey, I put 300 bucks into this thing and I'm going to wear it. 
I mean, so let me just tell you, Teddy's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, and that ain't the best logic, Bears fans. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. What we do need to cover right now, though, is it's not going to happen. They're not trading Justin Fields because they just worked out a trade with the Carolina Panthers to move the number one draft pick in this year's NFL draft. And here's what they'll get. Okay, the Bears will swap from number one to number nine in the first round this year. Okay, and they will get the 61st pick in the second round. So they get they switch picks with Carolina in the first round from one to nine, and they grab an extra second rounder this year. They get another first rounder next year from Carolina, and they get an additional second rounder in 2025. Okay, and they also get wide receiver DJ Moore. Now, that is not a bad trade. It's not a bad trade. Um, is it the best trade they could get for the number one overall pick this year with the quarterbacks that are in this draft class? No. I believe they pulled the gun on this way too early. I mean, I like DJ Moore. DJ Moore is very good. People are downplaying how good DJ Moore is. Uh, you cannot downplay that. They have not had very good quarterbacks in Carolina at all, and this guy's put up some 1,000-yard seasons. Last year was a bit down, but the, the carousel of quarterbacks was just revolving endlessly last year for them in Carolina, and they weren't very good. But I'm telling you this right now. DJ Moore is a very good wide receiver, and he'll be needed for Justin Fields. The pick haul here, I'm going to ask everybody to knock it off with saying that they got two first-rounders. They did not get two first-rounders. They got one additional first-rounder. They're swapping first-round picks, okay? They're moving from one to nine. You can't say, well, they got the ninth pick, so and they got another one next year. They get two first-rounders. They did not get two first-rounders. They're swapping places this year and getting a second-rounder. They're getting a first-rounder next year and a second-rounder in 2025. That's the haul. I really think they could have done a lot better. I don't think that's the greatest trade that they could have done, but I don't think it's a bad trade if you're sold on the fact that Justin Fields is your guy, okay? But let's get back to what we were proposing and why I think that the better move here would have been to trade Justin Fields, and here's why. Based on track record of trades like this, you were going to get two first-round picks, Okay, you were going to get actually two first round picks and probably a second if you wanted to move him to a team like maybe, say, Carolina, a team that was and they might have talked about that. But anyway, I'm using them as an example. There are other teams this year that are in desperate need of a quarterback. Right. There is like I think eight of the first 14 picks need to pick a quarterback. If you're outside the top five, you're not getting one of the top three guys in this draft. You need to move up or you need to get a guy like Justin Fields. They could have got two first rounders in a second for Justin Fields. And here's why that works for the Bears. Okay, if I'm the GM, it's a lateral move at worst to draft CJ Stroud number one. It's a lateral move off Justin Fields at the very worst to just draft C.J. Stroud at number one. And by moving Justin Fields, you're going to pick up another draft pick in the top 10. So you'd have picked number one, got the quarterback you wanted. You pick again this year within the top 10, okay? You're going to get another first rounder off somebody next year, giving you two first rounders next year and a second rounder next year off of that, right? Now, Let's compile that with the fact that you've already acquired eight draft picks in this year's draft, okay, to go with what I've already just told you. You've got eight picks this year. You have the largest cap space in the NFL this year to go sign free agents, okay? 
ton of cap room. Go fill out your roster with some really good free agents. You got C.J. Stroud, number one. You get another pick in the top ten, which some people think if that pick would have still wound up in the top seven, you could land Jalen Carter, which is probably your biggest need, defensive line. You could have got him along with C.J. Stroud, right? And here's the kicker. And here's the kicker for you guys. You got all this time and money wrapped up in Justin Fields, and it's nowhere near the money you're going to have to wrap up into him next year. Because next year, Fields is going to be looking for that contract extension. He's going to look to sign a few-year deal with the Bears, and he's going to be looking to grab that bag. If you move him right now, you got Stroud, which again, I believe is a lateral move at worst. I think he's going to be better. And you got a guy on a rookie deal. You got a guy in a rookie deal for a number of years, and that's how you get to a Super Bowl in the NFL right now. Spend that money on some free agents. Use up that cap space. Acquire all these extra picks, and that's how you rebuild the Bears in a year and a half. I just think that that is a way better plan than what they pulled off. Now, I could have been eating crow if they'd have turned out a better deal, but the deal they got from Carolina compared to what I'm proposing – I still think mine's a lot better plan. Your quarterback situation is looking pretty good at that point. You can go out and address that offensive line and wide receiver problem that you got with that free agency cap space and the extra picks that you've acquired. You're going to go out and address the interior D line. You're going I mean you're getting everything done in a year and a half right there and some time to develop some of these guys. It's just the better plan. You can disagree with me or don't on that, but I'll tell you you're wrong. And only time will tell. We'll see. But, hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. As always, much appreciated. And we'll see you next time, which very well could be April 1st, HonestNetwork.com, DWMOD-TV.